everybody, let me tell you about our friends over at Romer Skincare. Based out of Chicago, Romer launched a work-from-home clean skincare line that covers all your skin needs with three easy-to-follow steps. Now you're probably wondering, why should I check them out? Well, simple ingredients, effective results, a perfect upgrade if you're still washing your face with that weird bar of soap or that drugstore face wash that you bought at the last second. Can't even pronounce any of the words on the back of the bottle. You can look them up on Twitter and Instagram at Romer Skincare. That's at Romer Skincare. And right now, Romer Skincare is offering our listeners 15% off a gift with your first purchase by using the code LISTENER15. That's code LISTENER15 on their website, RomerSkincare.com. Impress your partner and get happy skin. turn the microphone on and said, make me laugh, and they just start laughing. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's everybody going today? How's everybody going today? Where's everybody doing? <laughs> <laughs> I got my mixed up. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. How are you? I know you're sore. You've been working a lot today. I'm sore. I'm tired. I'm ready for bed. Me too. But it's not been, even 8 o'clock yet. No, it is 8.30. Oh, it is? Yes. Okay. I have been working three days straight on this fucking thing. So we're going to get it done. I, I'm i staying awake. Good. Hold on. It's professional radio right there. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you don't catch that. That's okay. Oh, I, I caught it. Caught the, catch the yawns? Yes. Or, oh, yeah. No, I'm sure I will. But it's okay. So it's a uh, spooky Halloween season. Yes, it is. So it's only fitting that we do a spooky Halloween series. Now, we were supposed to do a different series, and now we're doing this one. And who you were supposed to cover, we will do at a later time. I don't know if we'll wait all the way till next Halloween to do them, but we will do him. We will do that story eventually. Well, you already... Re- it's a him. Yeah, it's a him. Okay. He's a he. He's a, yeah, yeah, sure. That's fine. It's not a big deal. Okay, anyway. The subject of this three-part Halloween series. Now, I know we kind of fucked it up by switching to Mondays when this comes out. And this, the last episode of this, will come out the Monday after Halloween. If we would have stayed on Saturdays, it would have came out on Halloween. But more than likely, most people are going to be listening to podcasts on Monday on the way to work anyway. So it's fine. So the subject of this three-part Halloween series was an Irish horror author that wouldn't write his seminal masterpiece until very late in his life. A life that started and ended the same way, sickly. You go on to fight through an epidemic, famine, and a mysterious illness, and he would go on to create, quite possibly, the most famous horror monster to ever grace page, stage, or screen. 
He was a large, burly, bearded man that could beat you in a foot race and drop you to the ground on the rugby field, but can never quite understand why people found it so hard to accept that someone that had the body of a man, but the heart of a child, and the mind of a woman. This is a series that has fairy tales, the occult, the theater, a zombie-like horde, drownings, murder, and at some point, a few books will be written. All that stuff I just talked about, none of that's in the books. That's real life. Some of those books that he will write will include The Snake's Pass, Lady of the Shroud, Mystery of the Sea, The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions in Ireland. Ladies and gentlemen, we give to you the man who wrote Dracula, Bram Stoker. Yay. Now, Stephanie Ann, what do you know about Bram Stoker? That he wrote Dracula and The Lady of the Shroud. I completely forgot that he wrote that. Yeah, well, he wrote a bunch of different, couple, a couple of romance novels, too. Yes. But a bunch of different horror uh, novels that actually get made into you know movies and comic books and stuff like that that I think people forget about. But, yes, everybody knows about Dracula. Question is, do you know anything about his life? Because I don't think most people do. No, I know absolutely nothing. I know nothing, Jon Snow. Well, you're going to find out. There's some stuff, some stuff about him I knew, but I learned it from reading another book, uh, American Vamp- uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Bram Stoker's actually in that book. And I learned a few things about him in that book. I haven't read it yet. Not, not the fictional thing about killing vampires, but actual stuff that was in his life that's in the book. Um, so our main reference for this series is Abraham Lincoln, Vampire... No, <laughs> <laughs> Something in the Blood, the untold story of Bram Stoker, the man who wrote Dracula by da- David J. Skull. Now, I will get into how I feel about this book and why I feel the way I do about this book near the end or maybe of, of maybe next episode because I don't want to start going off on the things I don't like about it. Uh and give stuff away. But we'll get into how I feel about that particular book in a little bit. A lot of stuff about Bram Stoker. You are going to learn about Bram Stoker in this series. I just wish I could have got through it quicker. Now, Abraham Stoker Jr. was born November 8th, 1847 in Clontarf, a seaside parish north of Dublin, Ireland. Clontarf. A weird fucking name. But a lot of Irish cities have weird fucking names. Yes. He was the third child and the second son to Abraham Coates Stoker Jr. and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley Stoker. The same year that Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bourne Graham Bourne Graham Bell were born. Also the same year that the Bront is it Bront or Bronte? Bronte. The Bronte sisters published Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. Isn't that what I said? You said Wuthering Heights. Well, it's spelled with a U. Wuthering Heights. But it's W. It's W U R, which is were. The R is silent. Wuthering Heights. Okay, Wuthering Heights. I apologize. Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, which would <laughs> both go on to influence Brahms later's writing. Along with the Penny Dreadful series, Varney the Vampire, or 
Feast of Blood by James Malcolm Reimer. There's probably going to be a few words in here that you're going to have to correct me on. Just enunciation because there's a lot of like Old English, Irish, some French, stuff like that. So I'm sure you're probably going to be correcting me quite a bit. French, I, I have no idea. Oh, good. So I can just say bullshit and it'll, it'll fly. Yes. Awesome. Okay, now let's get to know the family real quick. Uh, because his family, especially his mom, it's fitting for the Halloween series. We don't know a ton about Abe Sr. Uh, we know he was born uh, March 12th, 1799, Dublin, Ireland. The youngest of six children, born to William Stoker, born 1755 and died in 1827, and Francis Smith, 1760 to 1851, who were married at St. Andrew's Parish in April of 1780. Abraham Stoker Sr. actually worked in a castle, a Dublin castle, the seat of government administration where he was career civil servant. And that's pretty much all we know. Now, Charlotte, on the other hand, we know a little bit more about. We know she was born June 28, 1880 in Sligo, Ireland. She grew up in a piously Protestant family of comfortable though certainly not luxurious means in Sligo and the northwest of Ireland. She was an avid hater of Catholics. To each their own. <laughs> Charlotte Stoker was a practical, no-nonsense woman who nonetheless had a countervailing and lifelong weakness for things irrational, fantastic, and macabre. Sligo is one of Ireland's richest repositories of Celtic folklore, and Charlotte partook of vibrant of the vibrant oral tradition. Charlotte claimed to have personally heard the wail of the Beanshade, or Banshee, I'm sure I'm pronouncing the first part right, the way the Irish pronounce it, but, you know, a Banshee. The ghostly Irish harbinger of morality, heralding her own mother's her young life was marked by tragedy. She was born in the wake of a famine, which repeated with greater severity when she was four years old. In 1832, the age of 14 or 13, she lived through a truly horrific cholera epidemic that killed more than half the population of Sligo. Charlotte knew how to tell a tale. And the Are you okay? Something just flew up my nose. <laughs> Charlotte knew how to tell a tale, and the written version Brom would convince her in the early 1870s to finally write about her experience during the epidemic. The written version of the chilling oral account she gave to her children including, included the italicized inflections she must have given it vocally building suspense. Quote, But gradually the tear grew on us. By time, we heard of it nearer and nearer. It was in France. It was in Germany. It was in England. And, with a wild affright, we began to hear whispers pass. It was in Ireland. Sligo was one of the worst afflicted areas. Charlotte's later reading of Poe's tale of live burial would no doubt have triggered memories of a specific victim. Quote, one I vividly remember, a poor traveler was taken ill on the roadside some miles out of town, and how did those Samaritans tend to him? They dug a pit, and with long poles, pushed him in living into it, and covered him up alive. But God's hand is not to be 
thus stayed, and severely like Sodom did our city pay for such crimes. In total, five-eighths of Sligo citizens would perish. Premature burial, or its threat, especially haunted her. She recollected two incidents of souls who narrowly escaped the fate. One was a woman whose husband recognized her red neckerchief. She had already been piled over with corpses awaiting a mass grave. So you just imagine, you're walking, you're walking past people getting ready to be thrown in a mass grave, and you look over, and you see your spouse, something that belongs to your spouse, kind of sticking out of there. All that saves them from being buried alive is the fact that you saw them before they were thrown into the grave. Yeah, that would freak my shit out. Well, another, even more gruesome, was a man who awoke from a death-like stupor only when undertakers attempted to break his legs to fit him into an undersized coffin. I'm going to have nightmares. (laughs) All the Thornleys, including Charlotte, took a daily morning dose of ginger-thickened whiskey, and she believed the nostrum was largely responsible for her family's survival. At the height of the epidemic, the entire Thornley family fled Sligo. Let's try saying that five times fast. Sligo, 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 No, Sligo. Thornley family fled Sligo. Thornley family fled Sligo. we got to do it five times. Oh, you got to no. do it faster. And narrowly escaped death, but not from the disease, but from the wrath of a mob outside of Dongle, who dragged them from their carriage, determined to burn the cholera people in a fiery exorcism atop their own luggage. (sighs) You all right over there? Yeah, it's kind of freaky. But the final breaking point for them was probably one one of the last desperate days of the epidemic. The entire Thornley family was under siege by a zombie-like horde of cholera victims trying to breach their home. Are you ever going to watch The Walking Dead again? Yeah, probably. As the story goes, and it is a story, a hand came shooting forth through the window to peel away at the boards that were keeping the infected out. Charlotte grabbed an axe, or it was handed to her, and quickly removed the hand or arm from the assailant's body. The man fell to the ground, and since most mobs don't carry emergency tourniquets with them, he bled to death. Well, we're not certain if he fell into the house or into the street. In 1844, Charlotte and Abraham would marry. Charlotte 26, Abraham 45. She would be almost constantly pregnant for the next decade. William Thornley, born in 1845, and known as Thornley, who was born at the very beginning of a horrible potato crock failure, Charlotte Matilda, born in 1846, known as Matilda, Abraham Jr. in 47, Thomas in 1849, Richard in 1851, Margaret in 1853, and George in 1854. They got busy. And a man that old pumping out that many kids. Well, and say the fact that that's the part that you're, you have something to say about and not the zombie-like horde that she chops a man's arm off. Well, I mean, because that could just be a story that she's telling to her kids and it could have been exaggerated. We don't it's know a possibility. if it's actually real. No, but that's still, I think it's still pretty fucking awesome. 
because they said she she was able to tell to tell tales. She was able to tell a tale, and she could just be like dads telling tales to their kids nowadays. It's a possibility. Everything it is over exaggerated. So it's a possibility. I still thought it was a cool story. That's why it is a cool story. Now, by the time Charlotte was pregnant with Brom, the effects of the potato famine were being fully felt through Ireland. Starving and evicted tenant farmers flooded into the city's slums and workhouses, and with them, dysentery, famine, fever, and typhus. This was a time before commercialized baby food production and pasteurization, and young children nutrition was still a ways away from being understood. Many children died in the first year or even the first few months. Living through the epidemic herself as a child may have prepared her for one of the one that would come just day before days before Brahms' birth, compounded with the already ongoing famine. About a million Irish died in the outbreak that started in 1847. Now, in Ireland at the time, especially in smaller villages and cities, crowded cemeteries caused noxious smells that may have led to many health issues in the area. People believe that the city was overrun with spirits because graves would be open, spirits would come out. Now, as there was no proven connection between putrefaction and any outbreak of disease, it's still a subject that would need to be dis- that we would need to be discussed as we get into the problems Brahm would have to overcome early in his life. A mysterious illness that had never had a concrete answer. Early in childhood, Brahm came down with this mysterious illness that made it impossible for him to walk. The precise onset of Bram Stoker's debilitating illness is not recorded, but his baptism was delayed nearly seven weeks until December 30th and then conducted at the Protestant Church of St. John the Baptist, which still stands in Clontruff as a picturesque ruin. Brahm never contracted cholera or famine fever or any other disease or condition, such as a spinal injury, that might medically account for his inability to walk. Rheumatic fever weakens the heart, making his later exemplary health and athleticism problematic at best. There are some that say he was Mabelie, Mabelie, maybe it's Mabelie. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's Maybelline. <laughs> some say that it was maybe sexual abuse as a child which caused his paralysis. It is a, be it a mental or physical condition. They claim that there could have been a link between a bloody vagina and a vampire's open bloody mouth that he carried on into adulthood. I don't personally believe this. There's no real evidence to support it, and everything points to Abe Sr. and Charlotte being loving, caring parents, at least for the time, maybe a little overbearing. The possibility that Brahms' paralysis was induced by drug like opium is not as outlandish as it might first sound. Charlotte's true believer experience with whiskey-based nostrums during the cholera plague would have predisposed her for stronger medicine during the far more cataclysmic famine. By the mid-19th century, the administration of laudanum, a mixture of alcohol and opium, it's uh, one of those drugs that we heard about in the Wollstonecraft, Mm -hmm. it was given to children, even infants, as a cure-all or prevent-all, was frighteningly common. The homespun concoctions of the Thornley family in 1832 had, by the 1840s, been replaced by wildly popular commercial laudanum, preparations such as Godfrey's Cordial, Infant's Preservative, and Mrs. Wilkinson's Soothing Syrup. 
Some advertisements could carry reassuring endorsements from Queen Victoria. Bloodletting was also a common treatment for unknown illnesses at the time, and because Brahm would call Dracula a filthy leech, one can assume that at some point in his early life, he was possibly subject to medical leeches being put on his body. An ailment that would last for seven long years in Brahm's childhood. Can you imagine that? Seven years of not being able to walk? That's, I mean, that's, while you're a kid? Yeah. There's one just, thing when you're an adult, but as a fucking kid. Now, the years of Bram Stoker's childhood were filled with oral accounts of horrors attending the famine. Most poignant and tragic were the now legendary tales of the coffin ships, which carried typhus and cholera along with desperate immigrants headed for North America. He would incorporate the, incorporate the log of a doomed ship into Dracula, in which a literal coffin ship would return to British shores, doomed not by famine or plague, but by the bloodthirsty demon himself. He, like most boys at the time, was would be dressed like a girl until a certain age, in dresses and petticoats and long riglets of hair down to their shoulders. Boys at this time would stay dressed this way until they hit a certain age, usually about seven. The practice continued far beyond any practical utility, toilet training, for example. Maintaining boys in a sexually undifferentiated or aggressively feminized state until breaching into shorts or trousers was a curious, long-lived, and still remarkably underexplored historical custom. The breaching signified the transference of a child from the mother's domestic realm to the father's beastly world domain. Many mothers, including Charlotte, more than likely, held off on this transferring for as long as possible. Brahm was still dressed this way, even though he was stuck immobilized. What does a boy think about? Immobilized for years, kind of fragile feminine doll. Quote, I was naturally thoughtful, and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts, which were fruitful according to their kind. A healthy child would be expected to engage in normal play, but in Brahms' case, he would have been a helpless passive observer of normal, able-bodied children and adults, all of them costumed as females except for his father. Among the imaginative fruits of Bram Stoker's peculiar early years may have been a lifelong fascination with gender instability and ambiguity. Charlotte's forceful personality also raised questions about her own influence on Brahms' early perception of sex roles and about who actually wore the trousers in the Stoker household. Although the word mannish is not used in any Family reference, it's clear that Charlotte was not a typical Victorian mother. She was outspoken on public issues in a manner more typical of men and had a dominating influence in her family. Nearly two decades younger and more vigorous than her spouse, Charlotte is described by Stoker editor and critic Clive Leatherdale as, quote, a handsome, strong-minded woman if she could see no ambition in her husband, was determined to invest in her sons. Abraham Stoker Sr. would be warmly remembered by family members, but not for a forceful personality or rising career achievement. 
The first of his family to break above the artisan class, Abraham settled into a decade of career complacency as a junior clerk at Dublin Castle between 1815 and 1837, when he finally became an assistant clerk and only applied for the position of senior clerk in 1853, 12 years before his retirement. He wasn't what you would say or call a go-getter. <clears throat> Boy had no ambition. No, and I think the only reason he moved up the ranks the way he did was because Charlotte made him. It was up to him. He would have just stayed where he was at to begin with. Now, I have to state that the Stokers moved many times during Brahms' childhood and afterwards, and always, almost always because of financial reasons. There are too many to really note, and the importance of the moves doesn't seem to really be overreaching in Brahms' life. So just keep in mind that while he's going through his illness and afterwards, the family is moving every couple of years. So if, say, he's living in one place and you look it up and he's living somewhere else, yeah, because they moved constantly. And it was all because of money, really. I wonder who had the spending issue, mom or dad? Uh, it wasn't so much a spending issue. It was a money coming in issue. He was just a civil servant. They didn't have that much money. And they had to take care of all these kids. And Brom couldn't get up and work because child labor laws back then. So he couldn't contribute. <clears throat> well, I guess that makes sense. Above all, Charlotte believed passionately in the power and importance of language and literacy. A man's mind without language, she wrote, quote, is a perfect blank. He recognizes no will but his own natural impulses. He is alone in the midst of his fellow man, an outcast from society and its pleasures. A man in outward appearance, in reality reduced to the level of brute creation. Charlotte believed that men should be well-read, and Abraham loved to collect books. One can assume that reading and storytelling was a large part of Brahms' early years. His first exposure to human to a human turning into a bat would have been in the story of Oswald in the Night Wanderer. But he probably would most mostly read the Bible and macabre fairy tales. Brahm loved fairy tales. To into old age. Loved fairy tales. I mean, who doesn't love fairy tales? Well, and you got to think, this, this isn't the Disney fairy tales. These are the fucked up fairy tales that Disney pulled all their shit from. I know. I, who, well, <clears throat> if you don't love the fucked up version, the original fucked up fairy tales, the true ones, then there's something wrong with you. Now, these, these fairy tales, he loved them so much that they would be a huge pull for him in writing later in his life when he would look for inspiration. Titles like The Royal Fairy Tales, The Hibernant Tales, The Legend of the Fairies, Tales of Mother Goose, and of course, The Brothers Grimm. But what he would come to really love, possibly most of all, was the theater. Specifically, the Christmas pantomimes. Now this type of pantomime was a theatrical entertainment mainly for children that involved music, topical jokes, slapstick comedy, and is based on a fairy tale or a nursery story. When I first read Pantomime, I'm thinking, you know, white face with the black on the face, you know, pantomime striped shirt trapped inside a box. It's a different type of pantomime. 
The Christmas Panto was in no way a religious event. It didn't utilize even secular Christmas themes, but it did coincide with the holiday calendar and usually ran well into January. Abraham Sr. loved the stage and theater and would have been the one to take young Brahm and his siblings to introduce them to this new world. Quote, Going to its first pantomime is the greatest event in the life of a child. It is to it a great awakening from a long dream. All the rest of life must have been nothing but a one-continued sleeping vision. And this is the real world in which the dawning imagination has sought and found a home to suit itself. Of course he fell in love with theater. Well, not everybody does. But he really, I mean, really does. Like, hardcore fall in love with theater. Now, even though Brahm had a vivid imagination and knew he wanted a life somehow interwoven into the theater, his parents had more practical plans. Aside from the fairy tales, he would spend his young years preparing for the entrance exams for Trinity College Dublin, the sole constituent college of the University of Dublin. Sometimes when I type shit out, it changes letters on me. I fucking can't stand it when it does that, so I have to real remember what I wrote. So now we jump forward to Brahms' teenage years, unless you want to hear more about him just laying there and able to move. No, thank you. Okay, now. Admission to Trinity College in the 1860s would require passing an entrance exam that almost no 16-year-old today would be able to manage to pass, including exams in Latin and English composition, arithmetic, algebra, the first four rules and fractions, English history, modern geography, and any two Greek and two Latin books of their own selection, from a list including, in Greek, the Gospels of St. Luke and St. John, the Iliad, Europeides, or Estes? Maybe close? I have no idea. You have no idea? Okay. I'd have to look at it. Sopho- Sophocles, Anton, I guess, Antony, I don't know. Plato's Apologia Socrates, Xenophon's Anibasis, and in Latin, Virgil's Aeneid, Ode Satires, and Epistles of Horus. Apostles of Horus. It's not spelled apostles. It spells with an I, not, not an O. It's spelled epistles. Of, oh, okay. Of Horus. And it's spelled Horus. <laughs> Everybody just needs to learn Esperanto because every letter is pronounced the exact same way every time. Nothing changes. That's the best line. We do not know what Brahm picked, but it was more likely the epics and the dramas. The only teacher prior to Trinity that he identifies is Reverend Dr. William Woods, who ran a day school near where the family had moved to in Rutland Square. Now, at the time of the day school, Brahm had possessed normal motor skills for only about three years. But his reading skills were up to par giving credence to Charlotte's role as a homeschooler. And at 12, his verbal, mathematical, and capacity for retaining information aptitudes would be more than evident. But on a purely developmental level, he was unusual indeed. Illness had robbed him of many basic formative experiences and socialization, and now, with only 36 months of anything approaching normal volition and mobility, he was about to become a prototypical little adult. Faced with daunting responsibilities, it was the beginning of a life pattern of punishing overwork and obsessive drive to overreach. 
at the cusp of adolescence, Brom was lucky to be a member of the middle class, however, just barely. Others not so lucky had to face hard labor in a time when there were no child labor laws, some beginning work as early as three years old. Well, you got it. That's the, the, the little ones fit the best down the chimney. Oh. That, and that's what I'm saying. One of the worst jobs for a child to have would be a chimney sweep apprentice. Because you would literally, without a mask or anything, would be set down into the chimney to clean it. Until you couldn't fit anymore. And then they got a new one. That's so sad. That's not great. But that's just the way it was. I know. Brom passed his entrance exam, but placed only 40th in a class of 51. God damn. Ranking just under the 20 percentile. Definitely not living up to Charlotte's expectations. The expectation of even a sec, even second out of a thousand isn't quite good enough. Now, like most young people in their first year of college, Brom was exposed to a number of ideas, religious and otherwise. For nearly half his life, his universe had been constricted to a sick room and his mother's hovering apprehension. At Trinity, there were dissenters and dun 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 Catholics. Politics, both worldly and academic, and generally more things in heaven and on earth than in his family's domesticated, Protestant, nose-to-the-grindstone virtues had ever made room for. In his second year, he was introduced to Victor Cousins' Elements of Psychology, a work not much referenced today, but a seminal work in its time. Its lasting impact on Brahm is evident in, by the mention of Cousins more than four decades later in the introduction to his penult- penultimate book, Famous Impostors. Now, as a college student, Brom had the privileged access to the Trinity College Library. Only four years before his enrollment, the ceiling of the library, library's stately, nearly 200-foot long room had been raised to his president barrel-vaulted height. The long room today is one of the most iconic and atmospheric scholarly places in the world. It's, it's huge, and it is beautiful, and it was filled to the brim with books. And I would love to just go inside and sniff. But because it, uh, it's in Ireland, and most of the people in Ireland were Catholic, it was very censored as to what books were allowed to get in. <sighs> and I am not allowed to say certain things, I promised. Several of the nonfiction books Bram's con- Bram consulted for Dracula were available to him as a Trinity undergraduate. Though it is an open question whether his fascination for the paranormal, already keen, would have led to a curious study, Augustine Camelot's The Phantom World, included an important historical treatise on vampires, was there, along with Sabin Baring Gold's The Book of Werewolves and Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. Two other books on the occult, Joseph Taylor's Apparitions and Fiends, Ghosts and Sprites, by John Netton Radcliffe. Now, Bram entered Trinity just as Dublin University magazine finished its serialization of Le Fanu's sinister novel, Uncle Silas. You ever heard of Uncle Silas? Mm, I don't think so. I I heard of it. I've heard of it before. I've never read it. But I know it's 
fucking creepy. It was which was then immediately published in book form after its serialization. Whether Brom read Uncle Silas immediately or later, it had a strong effect on him. A few decades later, he would specifically recommend this book to his son, the only literary endorsement ever reported by his family. The book was a teeming storehouse of macabre metaphor and description, which he would add to the wealth of otherworldly worlds and, and images he began mentally amassing in childhood. A growing history and horror and the macabre outside his schoolwork may have contributed to Brahms slipping grades by the end of his second year. His interest in the fantastic and the occult certainly took him to the ca- certainly took him to a cabinet of curiosities just across the street from Trinity College campus that advertised regularly in Dublin's evening mail. Magic Phantasmagora and Dissolving Vision Lanterns. A large collection of dioramic effects, astonishing mechanical contrivances and illusions, including ghosts, acrobats, magic visions, and other novelties. Mr. E. Solomon's optician, mathematical and philosophical instrument maker, established Dublin, 50 years, 19 Nassau Street. Now, but it was Brahms' college career that was becoming a real dissolving vision. 30 years later, he would claim that he graduated with honors in pure mathematics. This wasn't a small distortion of the truth. It was simply a lie. <laughs> Completely unsubstantiated by records. The claim, is a, the claim was all the worse in light of criticism that, in poor comparison to other British universities, Trinity's, quote, average number of mathematical honorees has been a fraction over three. And this is a mathematical university. In Brahms' year of graduation, only two such honors were bestowed. Brown didn't just fail to graduate cum laude. He was a fairly mediocre student. His low entrance exam scores persisted through his time at Trinity, again falling short of Charlotte's expectations. And it wasn't that he wasn't smart enough. He was just bored. After two years, his attendance became sporadic and eventually non-existent. With the connections through his father, probably at his family's insistence, he applied for and received a civil service post at Dublin Castle in 1866, full-time, six days a week. So it's not a surprise that his academic status was downgraded in 1867. It seemed that his academic career was over, but after a year off, he returned, seemingly a completely changed person. But his education wouldn't be completed in a usual way. Now, first... He had a large growth spurt, reaching to around six foot two, while the average man then was around six and a half foot tall. There was no indication that he ever had interest in sports before this. By now, his involvement in physical culture became both time-consuming and obsessive for the next four years, as he would observe himself fictionally in The Mystery of the Sea at college, quote, my big body and athletic powers gave me a certain position in which I had to overcome my natural shyness. He won cups and foot races and showed expertise on the trapeze, vaulting, and rowing. And play on two separate rugby teams. But physicality wasn't the only change. He was also the only Trinity man to have served as both auditor of the College Historical Society and president of the Philosophical Society. The, tip, the top position attainable, the hist and the fill, 
as they were known in, Tri in Trinity's extracurricular organization dedicated to discussion and debate. Both societies were excellent, excellent places for Brown to network and curry favor with some of the most powerful men in Dublin. He needed to. With all his time devoted to Dublin Castle athletics, the hist and the fill, pretty much ignored his actual education. <laughs> Go figure. And yet, somehow, April 1870, he received his bachelor's degree. His interpersonal skills and personal magnetism certainly had something to do with him earning what would essentially be an honorary degree based on his extracurricular and popularity. As one female acquaintance in Dublin remembered him, quote, he was an excellent party young man, and of course, always had heaps of invitations. When he stood up to dance, he had a way of making charge, which effectively cleared a passage through the most throng ballrooms. Everyone made, room, made way for Stoker. His coming was like a charge of cavalry, or a rush of fixed bayonets. Nobody dreamed of not giving way before him. And so, he and his partner had it all their own way. How my heart used to jump in me. In, in my dancing days when Bram Stoker asked me for a waltz, I knew that it meant triumph, twirling, ecstasy, elysium, ices, and flirtation. He was powerful presence, and everyone made way for Bram Stoker. However, he would soon turn the trajectory of his own life over to the spell of a man far more charismatic and persuasive than himself. A legendary exercise in male bonding that would control and dominate his life for the next three decades. Brahm carried his love of the theater through his college years, and near the end of August 1867, he attended a production of Sheridan's comedy classic, The Rivals. It was odd he would choose a comedy over a drama play, playing at the same time, but it's a choice that would change his life forever. In the leading role of Captain Absolute was an actor whom Brahm found absolutely riveting. Born John Henry Bodib Bodrib, it's a weird name, Bodrib, he went by the stage name Henry Irving. Irving was a self-trained performer from the province who, like Brahm, had become infatuated with the theater as a young boy. Unlike Brahm, who fell in love with the pantomime, Irving fell for Hamlet. The infatuation Brahm had for Irving would today probably be called a man crush, but that doesn't really do justice for a fixation that would eventually swell into an all-consuming, lifelong preoccupation. It would be said by a future friend, quote, I have never seen, no, nor do I expect to see, such absorption of one man's life in the life of another. The strongest love that man may feel for man. It would be nearly five years before Irving would return to Dublin, time that Brahm would use to throw himself to as much extracurricular distraction as his day job at the castle would allow, his modest salary still allowed him pit passes at the theater. Do you have a man crush? No. Not, not, can't say that I do. This is, I mean, it, it's on the verge of like stalker man crush. 
It's a, yeah. it's intense. It is intense. But he gets that way with men. He 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 connects very strongly with men, and you don't see a lot of that with women. You don't see him dating. I mean, he does end up getting married, but he, he doesn't even have those types of feelings really towards his wife. He can't really write about women correctly. He doesn't really see them. No as, man can write about oh, women correctly. He, no, fuck you. He doesn't really you. see them so much as um, sexual beings, really. I mean, he talks about it a little bit at, at, at different points, but it's forced. He, he It's much, much more... He's much more directed towards men. Maybe Maybe because of his upbringing? His upbringing, and a lot of people think that if he was alive today, he would probably be looked at more of a... Bisexual? Almost asexual, maybe pansexual. uh, So no sexual desires whatsoever? Not not a ton, at least not really towards women. Does not say that he didn't have sex because I mean those those urges come up, but it, it he had a kid. It wasn't something that well that's expected when you're married at that, at that age to at least pop out one kid. But it, it it just he doesn't show, and it's probably because of of his early life and being you know so looked over by his mother, being forced smothered. to wear women. Well, no, because all. Boys back then wore girls' clothes until they were. So you can look at almost any picture of a child from then. They were in a dress. Ernest Hemingway has pictures. Teddy Roosevelt. All of them. They all did. So Mark Twain wore a dress when he was a little kid. They all did. It's just the way it was. So, but I think it was, she kept him in that longer. And just her natural just suffocation because she was always with him. And it could just be something that he was just born with. That just could be him. Yeah. Now, what Brahm didn't know about Irving included the tumultuous details of his hero's domestic life. Irving had been married to the former Florence O'Callaghan since 1869 she had pursued him in the face of her father's disapproval, but only to be disappointed by the realities of the theatrical life, particularly long hours and Irving's long-winded actor friends, whom she found unbearable. After having the first child, the couple separated, then reconciled. Pregnant again, Florence was tired, resentful, and venomous. On the very night of his London triumph in The Bells, she snapped at him on the carriage ride home. Quote, are you going to keep making a fool of yourself like this for the rest of your life? Irving responded by abruptly leaving the carriage at the very corner of Hyde Park where he had proposed to her. He never forgave Florence, never lived with, or even spoke to her again. When his second son was born, he refused to attend the christening. The Irvings would remain married in name only until he died. They would stay married by paper, but they would never see each other living again or talk to each other living again. Did he see his son, though? Yes, sparsely. Man, that's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, that that whole family is fucked. His sons grew up to be kind of douchebags, and it's a whole... Uh, she's well, she's hor- She's horrible, but he's horrible, too. So it's a whole horrible fucking family. 
Now, Brom would would ultimately be more supportive than any wife could ever be. With Irving's return to the local theater in 1871, press couldn't care less. Quote, there was not a word in any of the papers about the acting of any of the accomplished players who took part in it, not even their names. To Brom, this was the last straw. He felt like the public was being deprived of his hero. Brom overestimated the power of the local press, and it was probably not the goal of motivating audiences as much as an ego-driven hunger to be published and read and recognized, and above all, become part of the world where giants like Henry Irving walked and led him to become a drama critic. The 23-year-old took his grievance and ambition to Dr. Henry Mounsell, co-owner of the Dublin Evening Mail. The other owner of the mail was no other than J. Sheridan Le Fanu, author of Uncle Silas. In 1871, he was nearing the end of his life and preparing the publication of the final collection of stories called In the Glass Darkly, containing the provocative vampire tale Carmilla, a major influence on Dracula. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Ladies, you know that man in your life with the big, beautiful beard? Or the one trying to grow a beard, even if it's just a little stubble? Well, what you might not know is that the skin underneath all that face fur can get dried out and super itchy, causing scratching that leads to flaking, and if there's anything worse than head dandruff, it's beard dandruff. That's why we've teamed up with TheBeardStruggle.com. They know what goes into having a big, glorious beard, hence the name. And they've created some of the best products in the market to help the man in your life tame those majestic chin locks and soothe the skin underneath. Be it the day and night oils, which keep the beard soft and the skin moisturized, and they smell great by the way, or the beard straightener that calms those extra curly face hairs and makes that beard look fuller and healthier. Kevin uses these products and his beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. And I, I really enjoy playing with his beard now. Beardstruggle.com uses 100% all-natural ingredients, they never test on animals, and have a 90-day money-back guarantee. All you have to do is go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use our exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, for 15% off at checkout. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now! At that time in Dublin, plays usually premiered on Mondays, and with writing times and typesetting and printing, common review of a play was usually put out on Wednesday. Brown pointed out to Mounsell that this does a disservice to the actors and the audience. And since most plays only stayed in town for a week, every day was important. He said he was a very quick writer and could have the review done on Monday night and ready for print in time for the Tuesday paper. This was probably all Mansell had to hear, The theater was the paper's biggest advertiser, so more money for the theater meant more money for the paper. Mansell let Brom know that there wouldn't be any money in it since staffers usually did the work. Brom understood and claimed that he wanted to do it to get more people to the theater for his own personal love of the theater. Right. There's probably another reason. The theater going was expensive for a person on a civil servant's salary, or a viewer for a local paper, get a ticket for free. <sighs> hey, 
And he gets the backstage pass Smart. to talk to the actors. It's, well, he doesn't get the backstage pass, but, uh, well, we'll get there in a second. The proverbial keys to the kingdom. The free ticket. Two weeks after his 24th birthday, he took his first night seat as a critic at the Theodore Royale. All Brahms' reviews were published anonymously, but everyone knew but everyone that knew him knew it was him. Brahm would pay attention to the acting and the story and the plot, yes, but what he really had a keen eye for was the stagecraft. Scene painting, costumes, mechanical effects, all the most emphasized features of the pantomimes. He also be- began reviewing the audience as much as the play itself. During a final performance of Gunod's Faust, a particularly rambunctious bunch irked Brahm enough to write, quote, It is simply an abominable nuisance to all the rest of the house and ought to be once put an end to. We cannot speak of it as anything else than a sort of revival of Donnybrook Fair. The foolish and unmanly persons who create such a horrible din between the acts by the brawling holy forget that the rest of the occupants in the house would much prefer perfect silence so that the past portions of the opera might dwell in their memories and assist their pleasurable anticipations of what is to come. But instead of that... They are night after night compelled to listen to vulgar attempts at singing, the coarse vanity displayed, and which is most offensive feature of the whole thing. It is high time that there should be put an end of what would not be tolerated in any civilized city. Go Brahms. So pretty much all that shit you want to say to the people who are sitting behind you in the fucking movie theater, that won't shut up. All the shit I want to say and try to say to people any anywhere. <laughs> He was probably so cross because he very much enjoyed Faust and had seen it many times before. It would be another major influence on his writing of The Vampire King. He eventually would witness Henry Irving play Mephistopheles in his own dramatic version more than 800 times in London and on tour. Damn. I've heard of Faust and Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles. Yes. Brahm would meet many unconventional and influential people over his time in the theater life, one of whom was Lady Jane Francesca Wilde, flamboyant wife of Sir William and mother of two sons, Willie, who attended Trinity at the same time as Brahm, and Oscar, who went to Trinity a little after they did. Yes, little Oscar Wilde. (laughs) By the early 1870s, Brahm had become a regular at her salons. Writing as Speranza, Jane was a fiery poetess of Irish nationalism, revolutionary by temperament and outlandish in demeanor, a Catholic-leaning avatar of bohemianism with a quick and sharp wit who seems to have been as much drawn to Brahm as he to her. Her husband, Sir William, was a known womanizer, one critic speculating that he, quote, had a family in every farmhouse in Ireland. In 1864, he was accused of raping a Miss Mary Travers after chloroforming her for a surgery. Critics also like to poke fun at the hygiene of Sir William and his sons, telling nasty jokes like, Stephanie, why are Sir William's fingernails so black? I don't know why. Because he scratched himself. 
pretty, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah, that is. Charlotte was not a huge fan of the Wilds. They were Catholic and of dubious moral character. And Brom had chosen to keep company with them. Especially Jane, who he saw almost as a surrogate mother. Some would say that this was his way of a at a late adolescent rebellion from his parents. Jane would wear heavy makeup, too thick for any ordinary light, and compound the offense with a vanity by covering candles with pink shades, and even daytime to pull the curtains, better to hide the decline in her beauty and the shabbiness of her furniture. She rarely had guests before five in the evening to stay away from the light, and it's only appropriate that this sun-repelled woman of the shadows provided Brahm one of his most memorable descriptive phrases, children of the night. Hmm. By 1872, Charlotte had decided that it would make more financial sense to move herself, her husband, and her daughters to Italy, France, Switzerland than it would to continue to live in Dublin. They left in the summer, and even though over time the daughters would marry and move away, and Charlotte would eventually move back, the move would be permanent for Abe Sr. I'm sure you can probably guess why. Because he died. <clears throat> and he was already old. <laughs> 45, fuck. <laughs> You're almost there. I'm not almost there. Thank you. You're closer to it than I am. So? <laughs> nice. This would also be a year in which Brahm would have another life-changing event. The discovery of a beloved American poet. In 1868, William Michael Rosati published selected poems of Walt Whitman, including the debut... What? I've... I'm going to bring this up because nobody got it on Facebook. and It included the debut of selections from Leaves of Grass. Okay, go on. Leaves of Grass. Okay, so I was watching Weakest Link last night. This guy gets the question, which great American uh, poet of literature or whatever wrote Leaves of Grass, and I couldn't remember the second po uh, book of poetry that they said. Captain O'Cap. Oh, Captain, my captain? That wasn't the okay. name of it, but yes. Um, the guy goes, Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> yes, you told me that. And I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh. And so after the round was over, and Jane Lynch, who's the new host of The Weakest Link, looks at the guy and he's like, I'm guessing by the look on your face that Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't a poet. And... I swear, I was like, I wish Jane Lynch would have said, no, it was Walt Whitman who shot Lincoln, and then he wrote, oh, Captain, my Captain. Well, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't shoot Lincoln. No, he shot John Kennedy. Wil John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln. Yeah, well, I know, but it was, still, nobody got it. I got it. Yes, but no, nobody else got it, and I was like, People are so, you know, does nobody know poetry? Does I mean, it's it's 19th century poetry, so maybe not. People tend to forget that shit. Like, you, do you know who Henry Irving is, this actor? The name sounds familiar, but I, I, I know a lot of poetry. Yeah, I... but, but this actor, he was one of, if not the biggest actor 
in all of Ireland or England and for America for a long time until he died. He was gi- he was huge. I mean, but the name nobody, sounds familiar. Nobody but... now really knows who he is. I don't really pay attention to and actors. The, in the third series, we'll, the third episode, we will kind of get to why nobody really knows who he is. Um, but he was big, cute. He was he's the first actor to ever be knighted, Sir Henry Irving. That's how big he was. But barely anybody today actually knows him. If you know him, you usually know him because of Bram Stoker. But barely anybody knows him. There's a reason. We will get to that in the third episode. But man, some people just, that stuff kind of just falls to the wayside if it's not something that you care about. But yes, I, I, I know what you're saying. Yes, yeah. people should know the difference between John Wilkes Booth and, or uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. Yes, a little, right. little different. Like everybody knows who Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald is, and like, how could you confuse him with a poet? Was he reciting poetry when he shot Kennedy? Uh, I mean, I guess some poets use their middle names sometimes. I guess that's the thing is you you use all three names. You're one of three things. You're either poet. Well, no, you're one of two things. You're either poet or serial killer. Or, or you know, an assassin. You're, you're, either, you're one of those. So it's a 50-50 shot. Now, Whitman, let me get back to the story, tackled the 19th century struggle to reconcile the spiritual with the material. In an age when communication with the ethereal dead was all the rage and materialization provided the big bang and seances, Whitman's poetry effectively coaxed together protoplasm and ectoplasm. Brahm first read Whitman three years earlier in the October 1869 issue of the London magazine Temple Bar, which featured an anonymous essay titled The Poetry of the Future. The piece began as a seemingly even-handed evaluation of of the American poet, but quickly took sides. Some of the Whitman's partisans had embraced the poet as the second coming of Homer, which... Begs, a different, begs question, did he actually exist? And the critic was determined to provide a corrective. Whitman's style had nothing in common with either the Bible, Shakespeare, or Plato. Quote, For days we all talked of Walt Whitman and his new poetry with scorn, especially those of us who had not seen the book. But when he met a man on campus actually carrying a copy, he asked to see it. Quote, Take the damn thing, I've had enough of it. <laughs> Brom took the book to College Park, the site of most the site of most of his athletic events. Quote, in the shade of an elm tree, began to read it very very shortly after my own opinion began to form. It was diametrically opposed to that which I had been hearing. From that hour, I became a lover of Walt Whitman. Brom learned from his Trinity mentor Edward Dowden that Whitman had planned a visit to England to meet Alfred Lord Tennyson, and Dowden had asked him to extend his trip to stay in Dublin. In early 1872, Brom penned a letter to Whitman. It was in some cases a self-deprecating and somewhat embarrassing love letter to Whitman. He even tells Whitman to burn the letter several times in the first few lines just so Whitman won't read the rest. He couldn't bring himself to mail it and hid it away in a drawer or in a book for the next four years. Again, he, he's kind of, he's a little neurotic. 
Uh, he writes it, and it really, I don't have it in here because it's long, but if you ever have a chance to get this book that I'm talking about, it's in there, and you can read the whole letter, and it's really like, if if you like this letter, great. I'm glad. If you don't like it, I completely understand. Just burn the letter. You should burn it now before you read anymore because I, I don't think you should read anymore. You should burn it. I think you'll like the rest of the letter if you read the rest of the letter, but you might want to just burn it so you don't read the rest of the letter. He's he's that. It's that type of thing. Wow. And it goes on that way through the whole thing. It's like, dude, fucking drop, drop your balls already. Fuck's sake. God damn it. Reminds me of the letters of me trying to tell somebody I had a crush on him it, in high That's school. exactly what it sounds It sounds like, uh, and even boys, it sounds like, uh, you know, a fifth grader trying to tell their crush that they like him. It, it's really kind of hard to read. Uh, now, by the end <laughs> of 1872, Brom had two publications appear under his byline, Abraham Stoker. His first known short story, The Crystal Cup, was published in the September September number of London Society magazine. And an unnamed first-person narrator narrator is held against his will in a castle, anguished over the fate of his beloved Aurora. He channels all his life energy, literally, into the creation of a beautiful crystal vase, which absorbs his soul upon its completion. The vase is displayed at a royal event, the the Festival of Beauty, where the narrator, or his ghost, sees the heartbroken Aurora, now the dejective consort to a morose king. The exquisite beauty of the crystal moves Aurora to sing. A striking example of Brown's young writing, the story owes a strong debt to Poe, indicating a youthful familiarity with the American master of the macabre, The story takes place in a kingdom by the sea where two lovers have been separated and one imprisoned in an homage to Annabelle Lee. The words nevermore appear repeatedly. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Should I have been saying vase instead of vase? Since it's Victorian time? Crystal vase? No. No? Okay. The second publication was the text of his November 13th Hist address, The Necessity for Political Honesty. Although it included an explicit allusion to one of his favorite pieces of dark literature, Macbeth, the necessity couldn't have been more different piece of writing than the Crystal Cup. The lecture was rhetorical toward de force and a bit of a humorous jab. The Hist's bylaws prohibit outright political debate, but Brahm cleverly contrived to talk about politics without bringing up a single political argument. He predicted that Celtic revival would be most fully realized in America. The Irish people, quote, this leaving race of future America, this race which we young men have each of us directly and indirectly influenced for good or ill, may become in time the leading element of Western civilization. Here stands my wife. Well, sits my wife. Brahms' romantic fascination with the American experiment, fueled by his fascination with Walt Whitman, would only continue to grow. After the address, he received a certificate for oratory, and his tutor, George Ferdinand Shaw, made the successful motion to have the address printed at the Hist's expense. Now, in 1873, he accepted the position of editor for a new four-page daily, The Irish Echo. And even though it actually paid him money, unlike the mail gig, 
and it supplemented his civil service income. By the spring of 1874, the overall demand on his time and energy reached a breaking point, and he resigned. But while the Echo job lasted, Brahm infused the paper freely and anonymously with his own personality beyond the stage reviews, and paper and the paper was peppered with humorous filler and anecdotes that often read suspiciously like many of his own droll journal entries. On November 25, 1873, he entertained readers with a secondhand account of another sea monster first reported by the San Diego Union, in which a certain Captain Charlesworth and his crew, hunting curlew along the coast, instead encounter in a cove a frightful monster. Fully 30 feet in length, shaped like a snake with three sets of fins, a tail like an eel, and a head like an alligator's. Every child in Ireland grows up with snakes, or at least images of them. The serpent is extraordinarily prevalent in Irish folklore, even if the reptile is not native to the island. As a symbol of paganism imported by the Celts, serpents were supposedly banished by St. Patrick's, but they have never left Irish art and iconography. Now, the familiar decorative Celtic knot is a stylized snake symbol, and it slithers all over the form of many Celtic crosses, decorative serpents around the illuminated pages of the Book of Kells. Snake imagery had already begun to appear in the cycle of fairy tales Brahm was writing, even though he wouldn't publish them for another decade. His novel, The Snake's Pass, would evoke Ireland's legendary past, and his final book, The Lair of the White Worm. Who uses the snake as an image of overwhelming, nightmarish horror? But in the case of the San Diego monster of 1872, his attitude is skeptically humorous, which you don't get a lot of from Brahm Stoker. There's zero pictures of Brahm Stoker smiling. Zero. There's not very many pictures of him in the first place, but the ones that there are, he doesn't smile in any of them. Maybe that is his smile. Did you ever think about that? No, because people because people had said that when he wasn't getting his pictures take, taken, he did smile. And he would laugh and joke around with people. But when camera came out, he would I look at any picture, especially when he was especially when he was younger, he just he looks into the camera like it's stealing his soul. He's just like, ooh. Yeah. I should do that from now on. That's fine. The mo- oh, I will do it from now on since you always want to force me to take my picture. I'll just. I have stopped forcing you to take because pictures. Because I stopped taking them with you. Now, the most sig- significant personal contribution Braun, Braun made to the Echo was a hitherto unknown short story, Saved by a Ghost, which appeared on December 26th, 1873. Boxing Day was also the, the usual date, usual debut date for the annual pantomimes which were hardly the only fantastical tradition associated with the English Christmas. The telling of ghost stories on or around Christmas was a British ritual, a persisting vestige of pagan times. When the winter solstice, the longest, darkest night of the year, was believed to be especially attuned to the supernatural. Braun published Saved by a Ghost anonymously, like everything else he wrote for the Echo, but it has many of the features of his later fiction, including a fascination with seafaring, supernatural or otherwise, and 
male comradeship. The story begins with an unidentified speaker asking simply, Do any of you believe in ghosts? The person addressing us is Captain Charles Merwin, standing with his back to the fire in the coffee room of the Royal Hotel Liverpool, who has clearly secured his audience's attention, as well as the readers. Quote, The reason I ask is because a ghost was the principal cause of a sudden reformation which has been the making of me. Then, in an unbroken monologue, he recounts an incident from 17 years before. At the age of 18, the captain tells us he was already a thorough sailor and a thorough drunkard, homeward bound from the East Indies, with, quote, an unusually hard crew, all of them, except myself, being taken out of Gaul and put on board the ship in irons. He suspects foul play when the third mate, when the third mate Billy McLean, goes into convulsions while Charles writes a letter for him and dies in his arms. Charles himself is named as the dead man's replacement, while a plot is hatched among the discontent crew to poison the officers with arsenic and force a landing for the replacement officers. Then, one night, Billy returns. Saved by a Ghost was only his second published piece of fiction, but it showed his keen interest in the possibilities of the returning dead. Now, aside from ghost stories, a plentiful British commodity in the 1870s, Brown had frequent exposure to uncanny themes in the operas he reviewed for the Evening Mail. Bellini's La Sanambula was presented twice at the Theatre at the Theatre Royale during Brahms' tenure as a critic. Like mesmerism, sleepwalking would be a significant plot element of Dracula. In his review of the 1875 Hawkins Street production, Brahm took special notice of the character Amina, an unsophisticated Swiss woman whose uncontrollable night wanderings take her, takes her smack into the bedroom of a mysterious, recently arrived count. Evaluating one Mademoiselle Albini and her Dublin debut in the title role, Brahm found her, Brahm found her singing, quote, a little short of perfection, and we selected items for special special notice. We should be tempted to praise everything. She is fascinating in style, and she acts gracefully and intelligently. If it isn't already obvious, the name Amina is extraordinarily close in spelling and sound to Mina, the embattled heroine of Dracula, who deals with her own and other problems of sleepwalking, mesmerism, and the attention of a certain elusive count. At about the same time as beginning his work with the Echo, Brahm made an acquaintance of an actress who had become a lifelong friend and confidant. In his personal reminiscence, Brahm describes his first exposure to the work of American actress Genevieve Ward. In the summer of 1874, Brahm visited Ward and her mother in Paris, planning to meet his parents in Switzerland afterwards, but the City of Lights proved too much greater interest, and he snubbed them. <laughs> Charlotte wrote to him afterwards in Dublin, expressing regret that he didn't Venice visit, but the French capital had much that might delay his departure. The theatrical Paris must have been a revelation. Brahm loved it so much, he continued to return in 1875 and 76, I was impressed by the aspects of Paris far apart from its stages. During these trips, he took notes of one of his most memorable short stories, The Burial of Rats. 
published in serial installments in 1896 and only posthumously as an intact text in 1914, in a vast dust heap at the city's periphery, a first-person protagonist is stalked by a predatory band of rag pickers. The title is creepily misdirecting. It is not rats that are buried, we learn, but rather the human corpses they strip to bone that are figuratively interred in the digestive tract. As one of the dust heap designines explains, quote, He died last night. You won't find much of him. The burial of rats is quick. The story includes a partially unsettling, sustained metaphor of invertebrate feeling that must have come from Brahms' study of Parisian maps and plans of the city, city's radiating streets, rails, and sewers. In the highly centralized city, he saw, quote, many long arms with innumerable tentacli, and in the center rises a gigantic head with a comprehensive brain and keen eyes to look on every side and ears sensitive to hear and a voracious mouth to swallow. The hunger of this metropolis was highly irregular. Brahm had hopes of becoming a playwright, and Ward encouraged him in the writing of a play based on the life of Madame Roland, a leading figure in the French Revolution. Nothing came from Brahm's Madame Roland play, no script have ever been discovered, but the possibility of writing for the stage stuck with him. In his journal, he jotted a note that posed the fall of House of Usher might be a good basis for an opera, and his instinct was astute. Brahm never developed him himself. Work for the stage was collaborative and contingent upon many variables and vagaries. For Brahm, fiction was much more manageable creative outlet, and he had been working steadily at the craft since the publication of his first two short stories. In early 1875, The Primrose Path, a novella by A. Stoker Esquire, was serialized in five issues in the Dublin magazine, The Shamrock. I think of Esquire. I can't think of anything but Bill and Ted. Yes. <laughs> the successive and cumulative improvement of Brahms' narrative skills from the Crystal Cup, saved by a ghost, to the Primrose Path, suggest a sudden eruption of honed craftsmanship that is probably misleading. We don't know how closely one composition followed upon the other. The Crystal Cup may have been a very early piece of young writing. Saved by a Ghost appeared only after he had more than a year of grueling journalism under his belt and experience sure to improve any kind of writing. Clive Leatherdale, Brahm's most prolific modern editor, notes that young Brahm may have been hardened to rejection, submitting an untold number of stories to Dublin and London periodicals in the early 1870s. It is a safe bet that many of Stoker's early works languished in drawers never to be published, which is sad. That is sad. In structure, dialogue, and characterization, the Primrose Path resembles stage melodrama to which Brahm had regular exposure during his years as a critic. It also reflects an extraordinary ambivalence about the theater, which could only have come from Brahm's own struggle to balance practicality and stability with the powerful pull of his heart's desire. The protagonist, Jerry O'Sullivan, is a Dublin carpenter struggling to support his wife, Katie, and their baby daughter. He receives an offer of employment from a theater in London, which which revives, quote, a strange longing to share in the unknown life of the dramatic world, a realm as alluring and esoteric as the mysteries of Isis to a neophyte. 
Jerry's wife is heartbroken when he leaves for London, even though he explains that it is all for the good of the family and he will soon be able to send for her and their daughter. Jerry falls into alcoholism, tempted by a Mephistophelian character. When Katie and the baby finally arrive, he is unemployable and beyond salvation. In a bestial frenzy, he kills Katie with a hammer and then cuts his throat with a carpenter's chisel. The term Primrose Path is coined by Shakespeare and Hamlet, meaning the best or most assured means of self-destruction. And in Macbeth, the bard employs a colorful variant, quote, the Primrose Way to the Everlasting Bonfire. Yep. Yep. Brahm never had a real problem with alcohol, so the question rises to who he wrote it about. Usually write about what you know. Well, he did know was a fairly infamous alcoholic to base the story on, his old Trinity College friend, Willie Wilde, who started drinking in college and seemingly never stopped. To the point where Oscar asked him to grow a beard so they wouldn't be mistaken for one another. Have you ever heard the path to hell is paved in primrose and brimstone? Uh, something like that. I think that's where it came from. The previous year, while visiting Genevieve Ward in Paris, Brahm was introduced by the actress to a writer from whom she had commissioned a classical drama about the lesbian poetess Sappho to be premiered in Dublin the following spring. William Gordon Wills was a Dublin-born playwright, poet, and occasional painter. Him and Brown became good friends, even though they lived very different lives. Wills had many girlfriends over the years and was always terrified at the possibility of marriage. Now, I say lesbian. I don't mean lesbian is lesbian. I mean lesbian is from the Isle of Lesbos. Or how do you say it? Lesbos. Lesbos. So, yeah. Lesbosians. Yeah, she's a lesbian. Wills, Wills worked on his clay, on his, <laughs> Wills worked on his lays, plays in creative isolation, and his final scripts weren't always exactly what his client expected. But he always proved his power at the box office. The Sappho Project came to him with unusual creative freedom since real historical documentation of the character was pretty much non-existent. The historical Sappho, the lyrical poet of Lesbos, who Plato extolled as the 10th muse, lived approximately 620 to 570 B.C. Increasingly sexualized portrayals of Sappho (laughs) had recently provided 19th century decadent writers a backdoor way (laughs) of raising the general topic of homosexuality simply by evoking its more acceptable female Incarnation. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> it's a back doorway. <laughs> In Will's story, Sappho has a sister, Mira, who has betrayed her with Phaon. The pent-up same-sex energy of the Lesbos, or whatever, followers of Lesbos, Maenads, followers of Dionysus, you have any idea? How is it spelled? M-A-E-N-A-D-S. Maynad, Maynads. Mm. Maynads, yeah. The followers of Dionysus erupts, leading directly to the destruction of the Temple of Hymen. Sappho is condemned, and Mira pleads to die in her place, 
but Sappho stoically accepts her fate and hurls herself into the sea. Now, the problem came when Wills was running behind on writing the end of the play. According to Ward, quote, We were in full rehearsal before I could get a sight of the final scene. When it came to last, it, when it, came to last, it ended up only in a few lines penciled around the edge of the torn letter and in Greek, if you please, to bring down the curtain. So Ward looked for someone to finish the play, and she didn't look far. Brahm knew Greek and she knew he wanted to be a playwright, he accepted even though he had a potential conflicting commitment the following evening when the play was to premiere. The play was finished up when Sappho declares her sacrifice, so Brahm only needed to come up with the very end. To which he wrote, the chorus of citizens exhorts the doomed poetess, live Sappho, live, live, and Sappho responds, live, I shall live all the days to come. The soul of Sappho does not thus pass away, whilst hearts can break and lips be false to love. Sappho shall live. The night of the premiere, Brahm was lecturing on art in Ireland in the Fort Knightley Club and had to rush several blocks to the theater just to catch the last scene. He was, quote, elated on hearing my own lines spoken with exquisite force and pathos. Brahm's decision to review Sappho without revealing his own part in it was a tad unseemly. Usually don't review something that you had a part in. Yeah. The year following Sappho, Brahm once more had the chance to publicly come to the defense of Walt Whitman, whose Children of Adam's poem in Leaves of Grass had come under violent, incessive attacks at a meeting of a fortnightly club. He followed Edward Dowden at the lectern, afterwards wrote in his diary, quote, spoke, I think well. But that was only the beginning of the night's writings. He retrieved the hidden letter that he had written but had never sent almost exactly four years earlier and stayed up until three in the morning writing a new one to accompany it. And this time he mailed them both. Several weeks later, Brahm received a letter of his own. 41 Stephen Street, Camden, New Jersey, Court West, U.S. America, March 6th, 1976. Brom Stoker, my dear young man, your letters have been most welcome to me, welcome to me as a person and then as author. I don't know which most. You did so well to write to me, so unconventionally, so fresh, so manly, so affectionate too. I too hope, though it is not probable, that we will someday personally meet each other. Meantime, I send my friendship and thanks. Edward Dowden's letter contained, among others, your subscription for a copy of my new edition has just been recorded. I shall send the book very soon by express in a package to his address. I have just written to E.D. My physique is entirely shattered, doubtless permanently, from paralysis and other ailments, but I am up and dressed and get out every day a little, Live here quite lonesome, but hearty and good spirits. Write to me again, Walt Whitman. Ooh. The letter, of course, stunned him, as it would stun any young acolyte to receive such a personal, open, and generous response from an idol. Now, Abraham Stoker took ill in senior. Right. Took ill mid-1876. And on October 12th, the age of 67, he died in Cavaditarian, Italy. 
With his brother Thomas, Brahm made a trip to the continent to arrange the funeral. Also, in 1876, Brahm's surrogate father, Sir William Wilde, also passed. Mm. So it was kind of a one-two punch. Now, had Braun kept his job at the Echo, he would have had a larger platform to celebrate the return of Henry Irving to Dublin in 1876. Instead, he used the mail to give the Irving visit an, an, unusual, an unusual number of column inches. At the end of November, Irving brought his London production of Hamlet, The Bells, and Charles I. <clears throat> Although Brahm had not seen him act in five years, he had followed the stunning rise of his reputation in London with many reviews that compared him favorably to other theater legends. However, three basic criticisms of Irving's acting would dog him for his entire career. Firstly, was his wiry physique and strange gait, often referred to as a dragging leg. He would stomp one foot and drag the other behind him. He only did this on the stage and not in his personal life. It's kind of a weird thing to do. Yeah. Because he would, he, would, he would stomp with, I believe it was his left foot, or uh, I think it was his left, and drag his other one behind him. And that's how he would walk across stage, pretty much no matter what scene he was doing. Maybe he just did it for the attention, or maybe it was a psychosomatic symptom. I don't know. Now, the second criticism was his strange acting accent, changing O's to U's and adding E's to other words for no real reason. Instead of dog, he would say Doug. And instead of my, he would say may. But not like may, but my. Like it's going to be my. <laughs> like he was saying it like in sync. <laughs> so kind of like how people say Canadians say about, but they don't really say about. Some of them do say about. And again. Some of them do say that. I've heard it. Some of them do say that. But he would, for no, again, for no reason, only when he was on stage, he wouldn't do this off stage. And the third was his tendency towards general grotesquerie, weird eye gazing, and strange face contortions. Brahm was, was able to see past all these, probably because... The conventions of melodrama and the grotesque were so ingrained in the theater of his own mind, Irving's excesses attracted rather than repulsed him. He tempered his first night appraisal with a mild acknowledgement of some of the actor's more problematic qualities, the better to inoculate readers against dissent and win them over to alternate criteria of judgment. After his second appraisal of Hamlet appeared, Brahm was told by theater management, that Irving would like to meet him. Ooh. If he had any other plans that night, they were promptly canceled. He was introduced to Irving in his dressing room before the play and asked his supper afterwards. Like everyone else, Irving was struck by Brahms' physical presence, imposingly tall, still powerful body of the college athlete he had been, and yet behind the muscle and the beard and the penetrating blue eyes was an incongruous personality, childlike in its enthusiasm, and vulnerable in its insecurities. The 27-year-old tried to hide any signs of weakness behind a thin veil of affected knowledge, a not uncommon trait in university men, and in Brahms' case, more endearing than any annoying. And that athletic mass of him was a defensive costume, a barricade of body armor, fashioned from his own flesh, 
Irving, too, had his insecurities. An actor never forgets a hiss, Brom wrote, and understood the creative frustrations of an expressive soul struggling to escape the provinces. Irving realized quickly that Brom was no ordinary sycophant. In addition to his voluminous newspaper writing and his aspirations as a writer of fiction, he seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the theater and a mind that absorbed information like a vacuum pump. Some would go on to say that he had a um, uh, photo memory. Oh, okay. He could express himself in the written word with a quick and uncanny faculty that might be linked to an automatic writing of trance of a trance medium. His job at Dublin Castle required meticulous attention to detail and extraordinary organizational skills. He had been entrusted with a book a book length project for Dublin Castle to be called The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions of Ireland. A drier subject could not be imagined, but it involved a formidable ability to assimilate and manage information. Braun, Brom, I keep saying Braun. Are you thinking of Game of Thrones? I'm not. I'm I'm just not saying the word right. <laughs> Brom was a man who could be trusted with serious responsibilities. The evening concluded with another invitation to supper, and this one would be accompanied by a most theatrical finish. Brom wanted something mystical, an otherworldly experience. Irving knew just the thing to give him. He decided to recite Thomas Hood's Eugene Aram. After the recitation, Brom had no doubt that Irving was the idol he had looked up to for the past five years. Seeing the effect he had elicited in the shaken young man, Irving excused himself, went to his room, and shortly returned with an inscribed photograph. Quote, my dear friend Stoker, God bless you. God bless you. Brom would write, quote, In those moments of our mutual emotion, he too had found a friend and knew it. Soul had looked into soul. From that hour began a friendship as profound, as close, as lasting, as can be between two men. But more than likely, Brom saw a blooming friendship, and Irving saw a cheerleading newspaper critic who effectively did the double duty of unofficial press agent for Ireland. Brom's next review of The Bells was, for the most part, void of all criticism. And for Charles I, he declared Irving's acting princely. It is noble, single-purposed, and self-contained as a prince should be. And for Hamlet, he spoke of the uproarious final curtain call. Irving actually took a curtain call at the end of each act, which apparently is pretty standard for the opera or plays over in Europe, not here so much. You take a curtain call after each act, people in America are going to look at you like you're a fucking idiot. But over there, apparently it was something that people did. In 1877, the prospect of Henry Irving running his own theater was still something of a pipe dream. But, like Brahm, he knew full well the powerful attraction of London for stifled creative people in the provinces. And that is where we will pick up for episode two. Rah-rah, Irving! <laughs> no, not rah-rah, Irving, because Irving's kind of a douche. Well, I know, but that was what Brom was, the cheerleader. Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to be Irving's best friend. He wanted to be his confidant. And Irving, honestly, Irving does, doesn't even really want a friend. He just wants people to tell him how great he is. And he was getting 
the best of both worlds with Brom because mm-hmm. he was getting somebody who was going to tell him how great he was and then tell everybody else how great he was and bring more people to the theater. So. Put shit in one hand and uh, poop in the other? <laughs> it was or put bullshit. shit in one hand and then you put poop in the other then you have shit in both hands. It's shit in one hand and wish in the other see which one fills up first. Oh, That's well. how that saying goes. I don't know how it applies to this. Because that's what Irving wanted was bullshit and shit. Okay. If you say so. He knew he sucked. No, actually, he he was... Mediocre at best? No, he was actually... He was the biggest actor, well, will become the biggest actor at the time. He was just very polarizing. You know, he was the... The only reason he became the biggest actor was because of Brom. Well, Brom had a lot to do with him getting pushed in, like, Ireland. But, as you know, we'll come to find out how as, as Brom gets deeper into Henry Irving's life, um, he will help him with the theater in Deep England. to his ass. And then they will take it over to bring it over to America. He's Henry Irving is a very popular uh, actor. In this time period. We don't know much about him. We, in episode 3, we will find out exactly why we don't know much about him. Why we don't remember him all that well. Uh, because of an incident that happens that kind of erases Henry Irving from... Uh, history? History a little bit. Uh, but he's very polar. He's the Nick Cage of that time. Some people absolutely love him. Some people can't stand him. He's the Nickelback of that team. Some, some people love Nickelback. Some people, regular people, hate Nickelback. That's... Funny story about Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving home from picking up my daughter. And uh, Summer of 69 by Brian Adams comes on. <laughs> okay. And when we're driving, we like to play games. I like to play games with my kids, you know, to... Teach them music, saying, who's singing this? What's the name of the song? So I asked, one son says, Davy Jones. The other says, Nickelback. So you have one (laughs) that was about uh, 15 years before uh, that song came out, and then one that was about 10, 15 years after that song came out. Yes. Okay. So I was like, I have failed as a parent. Well... I don't know if failing as a parent, not knowing who sings the summer of 69 is really failing. Not knowing Brian Adams' voice. It's just Brian Adams. I mean. That's a classic rock song. Canadians can only apologize for Brian Adams so many times. (laughs) Quick trivia. Well, not trivia so much, but summer of 69 isn't actually about the year. It's about the sexual activity. I know. Who came out and said that a little while ago. That's not about the year. About 69. Yeah, most songs are not about what we think they are. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> Let's get to the socials real quick. Let's get the fuck out of here. Okay. On the Twitter and Gram, we are at OpenAFING Book. Should I slow it down? No, it's fine. Okay. I am at ECJBAT. I am YoungETM6 on Twitter, YoungETAM. On Instagram, we have a new Twitter follower, Sergeant Fucking Slaughter, just followed us on Twitter. There's a couple other people on, on the uh, 
Pottered family on Twitter that had said that Sergeant Slaughter started following them. So I don't know if somebody hacked into his account and just started following a bunch of people or what the fuck's going on. But Sergeant Slaughter's followed us, and I'm good with it. Yeah, we we're giddy about that because we're huge wrestling fans. Yeah, well, we don't do the other wrestling podcasts anymore, but still. It doesn't matter. Still we're still wrestling, wrestling fans. Sergeant Slaughter fucking followed us on, on Twitter. So that's, I'm getting out about it. Uh, go to our Goodreads, goodreads.com slash book. Uh, you can see all the books that Stephanie's been reading, uh, the books that we did our, our research on. Still kind of behind. We've been busy. Kids finally getting to go act, back to actual physical school, so have been doing a lot of shit with that. And, all but one so far. And work. Well, there was a an incident at the school. Somebody came down with it, so they had to shut down the entire junior high. So A teacher came down with yeah. it, and there were no substitutes. So so, so your high schooler can go back, and, and the, the, grade and the school. Elemate, elementary schooler can go back, but the junior higher can't go back. He's stuck at home all by himself learning while the other two are at school so i don't know who to feel better for probably him because the other two will be gone and he'll be and he's the good kid and it'll be all nice <laughs> and quiet i know i'm excited <laughs> it's weird it's the middle kid and usually the middle kid is not the good kid no and he's the one who's just like me left-handed creative quiet so, uh, yeah, I think it's gonna I think, be a great I think, day. Gonna have, I think you're gonna have a good week. I think yes. you're gonna have a good week. Well, no, because they're only going to school for two but, days this week, and it's three days okay, off. So you're gonna have a, a couple good days. Two days. You're gonna have a you're Monday <laughs> and Tuesday. You're gonna be a decent, decent days for it. <laughs> um, but at, at some point, we will get the good reads up all, to date. All up to up date. To all date. caught up. All the way up to this book. Um, which again, I will discuss how I feel about this book. Uh, email us, open an, uh, openafingbook at gmail.com. Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash openafingbook. All your donations go to make this uh, podcast the best it could possibly be. We have a tier for um, unedited. I don't know if we'll have that on there for this episode just because technical difficulties were running really behind this episode probably won't get out when it's supposed to um, so probably monday evening more than monday morning and i apologize to everybody for that but next week's episode will be on time um are you gonna tell them why my fucking computer restarted on me for no reason it said that it had to uh, do its updates and that it was going to restart in 15 minutes and the episodes usually take like 20 minutes to save. So I had to hurry up and get everything set up the way it needs to be so I could save it. And I had like less than a minute left for it to save and the computer shut down. And everything that you're hearing now for the past like eight minutes has been brand new stuff that we had to come back out and record. <laughs> because it cut off the last 10 or 12 minutes of the fucking episode. And I'm so mad. But it's okay because we're, get, we're getting it taken care of. Um, on the 30th, we will be putting out our All the Horror episode. You go to allthehorror18.wixsite.com slash event, or go to Twitter and type in hashtag allthehorror. It's all one word, no underscores or anything. If benefits scares that care with all their merchandise sales, um, helps give to families that are in need um, this fall and winter. And it, it, they've had a, a horror episode from all these different podcasts every day of the month so far and the one that just came out on the 17th actually has a script in it that i wrote so go listen to that it's fun 
Um, it was really good. Yeah. So rate and review us or, you know, wherever you listen. Uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, you can rate and review. Spotify, you can follow. Stitcher, you can follow and comment. Podcast Addict, you can subscribe and, and comment. Podchaser, all that stuff. So, so wherever you uh, listen, rate us, review us. It really helps us. Go to your local library. Volunteer if they let you do that type of stuff. Go to your local independent bookstore. Buy a book from a local author if you have money. Um, Stephanie Young Art on her Etsy page. Etsy.com slash shops. Etsy.com slash shop slash Stephanie Young Art. Art. Okay. I got it. it the, the link is on the show notes. So you just okay. go to the show notes, click on it, and buy some of my wonderful wife amazing smelling soaps and bath bombs and she has some new zombie brain ones and human I haven't brain put them up ones. yet she, you're going to put them up though it's Halloween you need to put them up okay I'll try to put, tomorrow put those up and, and they smell like bubblegum and cotton candy mm-hmm. oh they smell they smell great and they're cute they're perfect for uh hand washing which we all need to be doing right now so yes buy a bunch of them put one by each sink in your house and you're all set uh Stephanie? I think that's it. I think that's it. All right. Well, between now and the time we get to show, I do it again. Speak to you later. <laughs> you fucking dork. <laughs> do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. My husband's an idiot. <laughs> See ya. But I love him. Yeah. Bye, guys. Ha, 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 ha.